again, the great reboot, what it did was it, it pushed all of our thinking personally, and professionally pushed all of our business models at least 10 years into the future, just in the, in the 18 months of, of, uh, of COVID. I'm David Oti, and this is The Power of Story and Science, a mix of content and conversations on how to bring your science to life through powerful presentations. In this episode, you are going to hear a wide-ranging conversation with the always energetic Dr. Jeffrey McGee, a highly regarded expert in leadership and talent development. You will discover how leadership mastery derives from a simple mathematical principle. You'll pick up tips that will help you get the butterflies flying in formation when you speak, and you'll understand what the great reboot means for you. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Power of Story and Science. I'm your host, David Odie, and on this program we have a mix of content and conversations about telling the story of your work, because so many people that give technical presentations, frankly, can use some help on the soft skills side, right? That's the kind of conversation we have here on The Power of Story and Science, and today I am so looking forward to the conversation that I'm going to have with my guest, Dr. Jeffrey McGee. You want to say hello? Hello, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, good day, wherever you are as you're catching this uh, podcast. Thanks, and appreciate the opportunity to visit with you, David. Uh, I, I met uh, Jeff McGee recently through a mutual friend, and we had a fascinating conversation about his leadership programs and about communication and other related skills, and I, I just want to launch right into it. Uh, Jeffrey, why don't you tell me a little bit uh, about how you got to what you're doing right now, because it's, it's so multifaceted and rich. How'd you get there? I appreciate that. You know, it's interesting. A lot of us look back at what we've done throughout our career, and we start to look at in reverse, wow, it all makes sense. But at the time you're doing it, sometimes it's like, okay, I'm not really sure why I'm going here in my career, this job, or this profession. And that really is kind of the, the preface to answering your question. I grew up to be a journalist. That was my passion. Uh, before I went to college, I'd already had thousands of articles actually published in a major city newspaper. So that got me scholarships into into the journalism world and spent oh, some time. Congratulations. In, yeah, it was, it was very unique. And spent some time in Kansas City. One day I woke up and I realized journalism was a very negative, toxic industry for the most part. I mean, mm. I know it's not that way today at all, but it was that way in the 80s. And I just realized there had to be more to life than that. And then that took me into sales. I always tell people if you're unemployed, there's always going to be a job out there for you. It's called sales. Of course, if you're not good, you may not be able to keep that job, but there's always sales opportunities. Long story short, uh, I, I started getting into managing and leading teams and businesses, both at the Fortune 500 level and, and small business. That took me into understanding people. Jump forward 30 years, I'm in the talent development space. I've, I've had the honor of writing 31 books translated into 21 languages, four bestsellers, um, and that put me in a position to be able to share ideas. But I grew up as an introvert which makes this show very timely that how does an introvert feel comfortable in front of other people and try to be the extrovert? Oh, that's exactly right. And I, I relate. I totally relate because I'm an introvert too. And yet I get up in front of audiences. I get up in front of uh, training seminars and have to keep 
people's attention focused on me for six hours at a time. And I, feel, I feel your pain and I feel your pleasure. <laughs> I have been there for many years. And it is. It's great when you can work with fellow adults and share a thought or an idea or navigate a conversation and people's brains light bulb up with ways to be better oh, yes. and more effective and successful. I love it. That's what keeps me doing it. It's just that, that feeling that I'm making a difference to somebody today. Legacy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, even though it, it takes energy from me, uh, what I get from doing that is just this immense satisfaction, especially when I get an evaluation that said, I picked up something today that I can use right away. And I'll and bet people have mean, picked if, up if, a lot if, of great if, things from your books. And thank you. And, and that's part of it. I mean, when we as individuals can see a way to adapt or adopt a new behavior, a new mindset, uh, a new belief system that allows us to generate greater success, and we can do that in a way that we see benefit, others see benefit, then that manifests out, whether it's in your circle of influence in home or personal environments or at work or customers or suppliers, vendors, bosses, employees. And that's what it's about. How do you, how do you move the needle forward and make a significant impact on others? How do you make an impact on others? That's exactly right. Because when I talk to people who are technical professionals, scientists, engineers, uh, even financial professionals, people that for whom their first language is analytical, numbers, data, um, I have to keep reminding them, you know, your, your discoveries, your insights, your solutions aren't going to make a difference until they're known, until you can share them with people. And people can see how that's going to benefit them. And that doesn't need to sound selfish, but that's just basically part of the human equation, survival of the fittest. But again, if we see how it can benefit me, you know, it's the old Zig Ziglar, what's in it for me concept. Then we can take it outbound in terms of the what's in it for us concept and everyone starts to benefit. Um, it's basic human nature. Absolutely. Hmm. Okay. So um, let's just jump in with, uh, say, one tip that our listeners could use that will help them move the needle, as you just said. Well, in, in that, again, we're, we're looking at how to help people to present their ideas, communicate and craft their stories more effectively uh, in our demographic, because all of us, but primarily technical people, there's a tool that I would share called Rule 80-10-10. And Rule 80-10-10 is just kind of an observation I, I gleaned many decades ago, and I folded it into my coaching, but a lot of my leadership work. It's in several of my academic textbooks. And so basically what it says is whenever you go to engage a group of people at the outset, that group will tend to fall into three demographics. Our ability to recognize which individual may be in which demographic at that time really opens up your head as to who you need to talk to first, second, and third to build alliances and partnership and get people to buy in. If you engage the wrong demographic first, you may not be as successful. You may not fail, but you may not be as successful because you're going to spend through a lot of energy trying to get everyone back together. Um, recently, Gallup had some research that, that reinforced what I've been saying for decades is correct. They basically found the demographic of the American workplace or any group falls into three demographics. So whichever math you use, it's still the same. So here's what 80-10-10 says. So let's say that David is technical in nature, whether McGee is or not, doesn't matter. But I want to engage you as my colleague or cross-functional across another team or across the globe or you're my boss. I've got to recognize which of these groups might you fall into given the nature of what I want to talk about. Because people change subgroups depending upon topic issues and people influences. So 80% of any group are going to be followers. They're not good people. They're not bad people. They're just followers. So I would also give you a visual um, uh, diagram if you kind of think of it in your head and then kind of a visual picture to put here. So 80% are the question marks. Uh, you know, let's say you and I, it's lunchtime. I said, David, let's go grab something to lunch. Do you want to go? And you say, sure. 
I go, what do you want to go get? You go, I don't care. You're a follower. That's a simple example. So a lot of times in a room, in a meeting, uh, in a conference, there's a large number of people that are not really, you know, either way is fine. Make your case. So who does the influencing is what I call the 10-10, 80-10-10. Be aware that the people that do the influence at the outset are equally proportioned. It's not until one of the 10% starts to make their case and 80% start to come their way. Whether the, the 10% is making their case in a disingenuous, negative way or a positive, constructive way. So one of the influencers, I put a plus sign, and I call those transformers. They'll help you to transform forward. The other 10%, which are negative influencers, I call them your terrorists. A little politically sensitive language today, but I'm not changing my labels because it's out there in too many books for 33 years. So 80% of followers, 10% of transformers, 10% of terrorists. Human nature is we, in essence, spend too much of our time trying to um, pacify the negative people or neutralize the negative people or placate the negative people. So the point being is if I know that my topic has a vested interest in, ah, David, David would connect us, and I want to talk to you ahead of time, email, video call, talk to you, grab you in the hallway, say, hey, David, I'm going to present an idea in a meeting in a minute. Let me bounce it off you and get your thoughts. And you may give me a way I need to adapt my presentation a little bit. So when I walk in a firm room, I say, you know, I've had a chance to visit with a couple who talked with David and Cindy and Carol over there, and they kind of like this thought. So let me share it with the rest of you. The beauty of that opening right there, folks, is that by name dropping people you have talked to that are fellows in the meeting that may also be influencers of others, anyone that likes David now, they're an 80 percenter behind you. And anyone that likes to Carol, those 80 percenter behind her. And I've already put you two as 10 percent behind me. That goes a long ways in neutralizing terrorists. Negative people are not stupid. They won't even passive-aggressively work against you if they know the momentum is going in your direction. So 80-10-10 is a powerful way to look at your group interactions, proposals, PowerPoint presentations, working with, in essence, you know, suppliers, vendors, customers. Wow. Oh, that was a lot to take in. Okay. Um, and you were talking that's about... That's the easy idea. <laughs> that's the easy idea. You, you were talking about momentum right there at the end and, and how you, you got to uh, grab the, the right people so that you have your momentum. And that's how you overcome the negative aspect of the, the 10% you call the terrorists. Absolutely. So, so what, what tends to happen is, in, as a former journalist, and as a matter of fact, an award-winning journalist, let me let me... Talk about my past profession. Now, I publish a magazine and have for 30 years where the entire content of the magazine is all evergreen content, and it's all about success, performance, and achievement by phenomenal personalities. So in that, um, if I look at the influencers, human nature is that sometimes, and it's sad to say this in, 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 the, in the era of where we live today as we're watching this podcast, is a lot of times people take at face value what someone says. They don't check it out. We go to Wikipedia and we assume that 100% of Wikipedia is correct. Well, Wikipedia is a self-policing, which means if you got four idiots policing it, then you can have four idiots telling you what's fact. You know, people don't challenge things. You and I are of age, so this is scary for our listeners. We're of age where we remember that when we wanted to do research, and, and again, all of our technical participants here, when we wanted to do research, we actually had to walk, ride a bike, or get in a vehicle that took us to a building that housed <laughs> all of the knowledge of the planet, and it was called the library. That's and we right. knew what microfish was. That's not like going to a stream. <laughs> no. So. The point being is that today people don't know how to research facts from fiction. They don't know how to look at, does someone have an agenda in what they're saying or what I'm reading, or is this an objective read on thing? And you talk about the technical world of primarily our audience here today. 
You can have lots of facts. However, if you don't have a way to communicate them, then people won't have, in essence, the two sets of fact data between one that might not be completely honest and integrous and the one that is. And then what frustrates us sometimes is I have the honest data, but I'm not getting an audience. So you have to keep in mind the transformers are going to be the people that you have a connection with, that your friends or, you, you know, you, you understand. I understand how David's thinking or David owes me a favor. That's one way you can connect with Transformers or you have truly vested interest. And again, if you look out at the landscape, some groups, some marketing teams, some political individuals have learned how to leverage and manipulate 801010 to get to where they are. Whether you love them or hate them. They understand the model. They understand the model. That's right. And they're using it to their advantage. And so one of the things that becomes important, obviously, is establishing your credentials as a source. I mean, that's something you learn to do as a journalist is make sure you're uh, citing reliable sources, right? So here's the scary element. So when I went to college to be a journalist, one of my professors, her name was Beverly Paulson, phenomenal woman. She wrote for the Miami Herald for a thousand years. And she, when she was my professor, she was a thousand years of age, but she was brilliant. And she, she made that point that if I'm writing an article on whatever, um, if I had uh, investigative journalism and I really had a good, uh, you know, piece of uh, content I wanted to get out there, it didn't matter what the scenario was, you had to have three people that didn't know each other to corroborate what your point is or what you were saying or, you know, what, what you're about to unearth today. And she'd make comment, journalists don't interview journalists. And she would, she would, in her polite way, she made the point. You're a journalist. You don't have enough brains to know what's going on. That's why you have to go get three people that don't know each other to back up the facts. The commentators that, that will give you opinions are always going to be the older people. They've been around long enough to know reality from BS. Today, what's sad is you turn on the television, you have journalists interviewing journalists. And every time I see that, I hear my professor saying, wow, the blind leading the blind. So when you're presenting, think about your sources and have at least three different sources to back up key points, especially if you want to stimulate massive change in someone's thinking thinking or beliefs or how we do things. So one of those one of those sources could be academic. Absolutely. But the other two shouldn't be academic then. Maybe the second one's a practitioner, someone who's been doing this for decades. The third one might be an innovator, might be someone who has the copyright on something, the, the patent on something, truly has intellectual property on something, has manufactured and invented something. Um, so again, think of your, your sourcing when you present this from the stage and stories you use or in, in, a, in a presentation across the table with someone or in a white paper you're putting together. Your sourcing should not be all the same. If I know David respects the Ivy League, the easy thing is to quote three people from the Ivy League. That violates what I just shared. I want to use one from the Ivy League, use one from industry, one from government, one from military, one from the UK, whatever, something like that. Break it up, but it's credible sources, which makes me look better as well. Sounds like that professor had quite an influence on you. You know, I was not a journalism major. Uh, I was actually, I was in that department. I was a, <laughs> did a double major as an undergraduate in radio, TV, film, and physics. Figure that I out. I like that. They're, they always go together. They always <laughs> go together. You know, I, the thing I tell people is I had this fascination with learning more about how the world works and how we tell the stories of how the world Brilliant. works. And I did take, uh, someone scoffed at me for this, my roommate, especially who was a journalism major. Um, I had space in my schedule and I decided, you know what, I'm going to take a journalism class. I'm going to take reporting one. And this was at Trinity University in San Antonio. And our uh, well-known journalism professor was a woman named Marion Fromer. Uh, hard 
smoking, heart driven former New York journalist. Sounds like uh, Professor he, Paulson. Same way. I, I, I was just picturing that they're probably the, you know the same person with two different names. <laughs> and and Marion Frommer had very high standards, just like your professor did. And uh, people scoffed at me. They said, uh, "Why would you want to do that when you could take some of their elective and get an easy A?" And I did get good grades in the three courses I took from her and learned quite a bit. And I definitely improved my writing. Uh, right. Not everyone has the opportunity to to have mentors like that with their communication skills. And so when I went through and I drifted into the technical side of television and worked in broadcast engineering for 25 years, uh, what ended up propelling me out of that space was when someone said to me, you know, you got really good communication skills. They didn't say for an engineer, but it was kind of implied. And we want you to run this training project. And that training project was what catapulted me out of engineering and into training and speaking. So as you were saying at the beginning, uh, you know, Careers can take interesting twists and, and unplanned twists and turns, can't they? And, and, and that's what makes each of us more impactful and powerful when we can mentally pause and recognize, okay, look at my life resume in reverse, how I, how I, how I navigated from one to the other if it wasn't by design. But if I look at all the experiences in a rearview mirror, all of the education in a rearview mirror, all of the successes in a rearview mirror, all the failures in a rearview mirror, all of the acquaintances and relationships, and you leverage that for today, then you can significantly increase your success. That's kind of the theme of one of my books, Your Trajectory Code. How do you influence where you and others are? I might have to read that. That does sound interesting because that's something I've discovered in my life as well, that as I look back, uh, there was no way I could have connected the dots looking forward. Very hard look- for most of us to do that. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. But as I look back now, I can connect the dots and see that every experience I've had, um, every experience of being an engineer, being a speaker, being a uh, amateur thespian on the stage, being a singer, uh, being a survivor of depression, every experience that has gone into the mix of who I am right now contributes to what I do when I go out there to communicate with someone. 100%. And again, when you walk out in front of that group, whether it's in a meeting of a half a dozen, dozen, hundreds, or thousands, again, if you talk about something you truly know, you're the subject matter expert, and you talk about something you've even lived, done, experienced, and, and and you can wrap around that something you truly believe in and you're passionate about it, then 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 the stagecraft becomes very easy and the butterflies get in get in order <laughs> and anxiety dissipates and in 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 and getting up on front, just like I have a stutter, does become a non-issue and you just have a great fun time and everyone engages you. What gets us in trouble, and especially if you're the techno, is when you're being asked to talk about something you're not really comfortable on, versed on, then that's why you sometimes don't, you know, hit the grand slam. You mentioned engaging. Tell me a little bit more about uh, some of the techniques you use to make sure that your audience is engaging with you and your content. Yeah, a, a lot of ideas come rushing to mind, but the one that I probably find myself used the most when I'm in front of a group, and again, as we're recording this, I'm going to be uh, at MGM Grand here in Las Vegas on the Strip doing a doing a keynote to a large room of people here um, in two days. So whether it's a small room or a big convention, one of the ways I look at my audience is as if there's a piece of glass between me and you. And if there's a piece of glass, uh, again, as you're listening, visualize a large room, maybe a couple dozen people, and you're standing at the front. And the bigger the room, the model still applies. But when I, when I walk out in front of the group, if there's a piece of glass between the two of us, visualize a vertical line down the middle of it. So now I'm separating two sides of the room. And then visualize a horizontal line right to the middle, like a big plus sign on that glass. And so I have four quadrants. 
What I want to recognize is that in that room, who, as I look in front of me, is in top left quadrant. Oh, there's David. I know him. I'm comfortable with him. Oh, over in the right, who's there? In, in the bottom right, who's there? Bottom left. And what you'll then find yourself doing is you'll be working for familiar faces or groups of people all the way around the room. And anyone in the line of sight of David, when I look to the top left, they're thinking I'm looking at you. Now what happens, you're working the room, you become more confident and more, in essence, comfortable. And you'll come off much more successful versus if I walk out in that room or that meeting and I see David to the left and you're in my familiar face, I'm going to tend to spend too much time looking in your direction and playing to you, which means the people on the right side are going to start to feel like they're being left out. They may consciously, blatantly, obviously, it's like you're being left out. It's like going to a great concert and you're not in the front row seats, but you're pretty close. You know, that entertainer on the front stage is truly a professional. They work the entire stage. Now everyone's getting them. But if they just stay over on that other far side because there's someone there they noticed, what happens is everyone else in the concert starts to feel a little bit deprived and gypped. So think of that piece of glass like you're engaging your audience through the window and visualize them in four quadrants. And that's also how you can engage, especially now if you had a transformer in each of the four. Now you've got four energy sources in the room working with you for you on your behalf to move the room your direction. Four energy sources, which for, for those of us who are who are introverts, uh, for whom you know this requires energy, it takes energy from us, knowing where those energy sources are sounds really important. Absolutely. Someone, and I don't remember who this was now, was telling me recently about an experience they had where they were giving a presentation to a hybrid audience, meaning they had you know, some people in the room there with them, but there was also a camera connecting them to people who were remote. And the unfortunate thing was the camera was sort of to the left, and most of the people who were present in the room were more to the right. And so this speaker was, was telling me that you know, when I looked at the camera, I could tell that the people who were in the room felt like I wasn't talking to them. But if I just focused on the people who were to my right in the room, then I wasn't talking to the people who were remote. Have you encountered, I mean, it seems like so many speakers are running more and more into these hybrid and virtual situations. Absolutely. Have you encountered that? Yeah, yes. For me, what's what's fascinating to that question, David, is I've been living in a hybrid world for almost 20 years. So the great reboot, as I call it, of 2020-21, the COVID era, has caused a lot of what you just cited to happen in, in businesses with speakers and trainers. Uh, all over the planet. What's scary, though, is that a lot of people are still trying to figure this out. So I, I appreciate the question. So ways that I would I would set that model up differently. One, the camera should always be right in the middle of the room. That way, in essence, as you're looking to the room, you're looking in the camera. So the hybrid people see that they're also part of it. It pulls everyone together. Uh, typically, when I do the hybrids, if I'm in a roomed environment or a larger facility, then you know have the TV screen, which you'll have, you know whether you're on on Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever. WebEx or an internal platform to, to larger businesses, you can have everyone's photos up there so you can see them, they can see you. So if, again, if you engage them or they ask a question, they're, they're involved. Um, if the camera has to be this side, it can be the side. I've been in larger training facilities where if you're seated there as the audience in a traditional environment, the speaker's at the front of the room, but they also have these large TV screens you know, along the side walls mm -hmm. so you can see up 
So if I was putting a, you know, a handout or PowerPoint up there, et cetera. So in those scenarios, I would just take one of those screens and turn it around and have it facing you. If that's the other way, you can see all of your, your hybrid and virtual people. But one, you know, you just quickly want to take control of that room. That camera is in the wrong place is one element. And so that, that is the game. You're looking back and forth. It's like ping pong. Take control of the room. Control uh, and again, room. engage people. Um, you could have a moderator, someone that could also be working the, the, the computer system. So if someone has a question on the virtual, they can type it in and that person can feed it to you. There's a lot of ways to work that room dynamic. The, the, the real answer to David, your question, and for all of our viewers, is if you're working a hybrid environment, don't let it control you. You control it. And make it fun. Don't make it overwhelming. Don't make it scary. Make it fun for people because I believe hybrid is our reality. That's that's where we're going to be living. It sure is. It does seem that way. Um, in fact, uh, I, I'm leaning towards something that I've not executed yet. Um, but uh, I was going to share at the end of the program that I have, because for the last couple of months, I've been ending my programs with these words, thank you for being part of the story and science community. Well, that's now actually a community, a group on Facebook that I just recently right. started, the story and science community. And so uh, one of the considerations I'm thinking about is actually streaming these interviews live to that community as I'm recording them for publication as uh, as a podcast and vidcast, because then we can I, have some live boy, interaction. Repurposing, multi-purposing, I mean, I, all of those are the innovations. I, you know, I tell people that, again, the Great Reboot, what it did was it, it pushed all of our thinking, personally, professionally pushed, all of our business models at least 10 years into the future, just in the, in the 18 months of, of, uh, of COVID. And so, again, I, the reality is how you engage and embrace has changed. Doesn't mean you have to, but it's changed. Um, the deliverables that the marketplace now wants to consume has changed. Um, and, and your relevancy. There's a lot of people that, that need to really recheck their relevancy. Now, here's the problem, David, is we're doing recheck this podcast. Recheck their relevancy. I just want to underscore that. Okay, I want to hear more about that. Recheck their relevancy. Uh, I mean, again, so here, here's the challenge to, to where we are today. Everyone with a mouth thinks they're a podcaster. No, shut up. Quit making noise. <laughs> Everyone with a fingertip thinks they're a blogger. No, you're an idiot. Shut up. Quit proving it by posting things. You know, the, the reality uh, uh, of where we are in relevancy is simple. You know, I go on, you know, LinkedIn is, is really supposed to be the business professionals platform to do business as professionals. So all of this Facebook crap needs to be you know, obliterated and taken back somewhere else, et cetera. Within that, back to your common relevancy, you know, sometimes people will reach out for whatever reason, doesn't matter. And I'll look at their LinkedIn profile, you know, and they have, you know, a tenure of a year and a half to two years with this employer, a year and a half to two years with another employer, a year and a half to two years with another employer. And I would coach them, you probably want to take your LinkedIn profile down because what you think you're marketing is not really for anyone with a brain cell what they're getting. What you're showing is one, you have no relevancy, you can't keep a job, you bring no value to the organization, you think now you're going to sell yourself as a life coach or, or an expert. No, what you're demonstrating is you've been in a lot of places and can't figure things out because as a former employer somewhere along that line of nine different companies where you have two years each of them one of your employers would realize you're great and they would have went out of the way to have retained you for three four five ten years so so younger people and some people are not getting that the other mistake now to relevancy 
is just because you list your job like on a resume or on LinkedIn, that's not important. Type the narrative of what you've done, what you learned, what you gained, what your value is, how you can serve others, because that helps with the relevancy. Just like behind you on the wall for our viewers, you you didn't go through your introduction and cite each one of those certificates of accomplishment or diplomas behind you, but that's relevancy. You 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 verbally word dropped into your conversation and go you know X number of years you know in the studio behind the camera basically and doing it that establishes relevancy again what we do is our relevancy and we have created a society where no one is able to create accountability statements because oh you're hurting my feelings and then everyone points a figure to beat up the accountability person and 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 that's really doing a disservice to the planet relevancy you're not relevant go get a job and learn some Okay, become relevant. Well, I'm certainly uh, hoping that people are finding this conversation that we're having to be relevant as they consider how to be more uh, effective communicators so well. of, of, their, uh, of their expertise. Uh, you want to leave us with a last concise thought for this audience? What you do is your legacy. What you write, what you say, what you present that's your legacy. So really take stock in what you do. The great reboot has made it very clear. It's not just businesses and organization that the word applies, but you yourself are your own brand. And what is your legacy? You are your own brand. That's a, that's a powerful note to leave us with. So as we're wrapping up this conversation, there were a couple of things that you wanted to leave our, our viewers with as far as ways that they can follow up with you. Perfect. I appreciate that. So obviously two ways. One, from my talent development perspective, my name's on the screen. That's my uh, domain. So it's jeffreymcgee.com. Uh, and again, that's one place to follow me. LinkedIn's a second. Uh, I post every day, not a commercial, not an ad, but I post every day either something from the standpoint of leadership mastery, sales mastery, or personal mastery to get you to think. So it's another place we can connect. And I've been the publisher of professionalperformancemagazine.com for 31 years. And uh, anyone would uh, like to z- explore that. We get phenomenal people to write for us, just as David gets phenomenal people to come in and share as well. It's all about what's the innovation in your head today that takes you to the next level. What's your innovation today that takes you to the next level? Because that innovation is not going to change the world until it's communicated to someone. Absolutely. Love it. Thank you, David, so much. Thank you. Dr. Jeffrey McGee, it's been a real pleasure having you on the program. Such a fascinating conversation. And as I mentioned earlier, I now have a, I hope this is not a problem for you, a Facebook group. (laughs) Um, Your Facebook group is different than what I was suggesting. (laughs) Yours brings value. That that is what I'm trying to do, is to bring, bring value with it. It is an outgrowth of this program, The Power of Story and Science, and it is called the Story and Science Community. And if you want to find that among the groups on Facebook. Uh, If you decide to join because you have heard about it on this program, just give me a message and let me know that this is where you learned about it. I'm David Odie. This is The Power of Story and Science. You can follow up with me by going to storyandscience.com or by joining me in the Facebook group. Thank you for being part of the Story and Science community. This has been The Power of Story and Science. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend. Leave us a review. Or, so that you don't miss anything, subscribe at Podbean or wherever you like to get your podcasts. This program is a production of Speaking of Solutions, LLC. Theme music by Kevin Lufkin. I'm David Odie. 
Thanks for listening. 